Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Thank you for downloading this Intelligence Squared podcast. For more information on our debates, talks and discussions, visit intelligencesquared.com and sign up to the newsletter. Tonight, we're going to have not a lecture exactly, but a discussion, or a lecture with discussion, about one moral dilemma that looms very large in our society today. It's the subject of the new book. The question is simple to state, but not so easy to answer. What role should money and markets play in our society. Today, there are very few things that money can't buy. If you happen ever to be convicted to a jail sentence in Santa Barbara, California, just in case, (laughs) you you might like to know that if you don't like the standard accommodations, you can buy a prison cell upgrade. (laughs) How much do you suppose it costs? Anyone? Fifty? Two hundred and fifty? It's $82 a night. Or suppose you want to contribute to the alleviation of a tragic social ill. The birth each year of thousands of babies to drug-addicted women. There's a charity you can contribute to that tries to address this problem by offering a $300 cash incentive to any drug-addicted woman willing to be sterilized. A market incentive. Or suppose you're a college student, you want to make some cash. There are advertisers who are looking for advertising space on your forehead. A few years ago, a London ad agency began recruiting college students to wear tattoo ads on their foreheads for a company logos, that kind of thing. Now, these were temporary tattoos. They were willing to pay each student Four pounds twenty an hour to display the ads. One potential sponsor praised the idea, saying that the forehead ads were an extension of the sandwich board, but a bit more organic. (laughs) And some have taken this idea further. There was one woman, a single mother, who needed money to support the education of her son, who auctioned off for $10,000 access on her forehead to any company willing to pay $10,000. The winning bid came from an online casino. And, lo and behold, she now carries a permanent tattoo ad for the online casino. The past three decades have seen a quiet revolution, almost without realizing it. We've drifted from having a market economy to becoming a market society. The difference is this. A market economy is a tool, a valuable and effective tool for organizing productive activity. A market society is different. It's a place where almost everything is up for sale. It's a way of life where market values seep into almost every domain of life. Now, 
There are some things money can't buy, even if it tries. Friendship, for example. Suppose you want more friends than you have. You've not succeeded in acquiring them in the usual way. It might occur to you, it might occur to you to buy some. But then you would probably quickly realize that it wouldn't work. But why not? It's an interesting philosophical question why it wouldn't work. But somehow we sense that a hired friend, a bought friend, is not the same as the real thing. Somehow the money that would buy the good dissolves the very thing we're aiming at. There are many goods that money can buy but arguably shouldn't. And there are lots of intermediate cases. Consider expressions of friendship. Wedding toasts. How many here at one time or another have been asked to give a wedding toast at a friend's wedding? More than a handful. Now, for some, this can be an anxiety-inducing request. It isn't easy to write an eloquent and moving and funny wedding toast. Today, there's help. If you don't feel you're very good at writing a wedding toast for your friend, you can buy one online. One of these websites that offers them for sale is called theperfecttoast.com. You go online, you enter some information about the couple, how they met, how you came to know them, whether you want a funny wedding toast or a tearjerker. And within three business days, they will send you a custom-written wedding toast for how much do you suppose? Ten dollars? Fifty? This is a custom-made wedding toast. It's $149, including shipping and handling. Now, a wedding toast, then, is something that money can buy online for $149. But is it, this, is it as good as an authentic wedding toast? Here's one way of testing this. Suppose at your wedding, your best friend delivered a moving wedding toast, so moving that it brought tears to your eyes. And then later you learned that he or she had bought it online. <laughs> How would you feel? Would the wedding toast have less value, less meaning, once you learned that? What would you say? Yes. Yeah, probably yes. No? You wouldn't care? <laughs> You're not in the business by any chance, are you? <laughs> Why would it mean less? Well, in a way, it's sort of like the friendship case. When you discover that money has bought the thing, somehow the value and meaning of it is diminished. Not completely, especially if you don't know about it, but it's somehow degraded. The meaning is eroded by the purchase and sale. And this is true of many goods and social practices. And it's worth thinking about why, how this happens exactly, and what should be the consequences for the use we make of market mechanisms, of buying and selling. Take books. Now, books have always been commodities, in a way, market goods, in the sense that you can't walk in, into a bookshop and walk out with the book. You have to pay for it. So books are market goods, but only up to a point. You can see this if you consider the practice of Product placement. It's familiar in movies and in television shows. But we don't normally see product placement in books. Until recently. The novelist Faye Weldon. Have you heard of her? Well-known novelist. A few years ago, she entered into a deal with Bulgari Jewelry Company to write a novel with paid product placement. She agreed to mention Bulgari at least a dozen times in exchange for a fee in her novel. The title of her book, aptly enough, was 
the Bulgari connection. <laughs> and she exceeded the required number of product references, mentioning Bulgari 34 times. Now, some critics complained about the clunkiness of the product-laden prose. I'll read you a line of the dialogue. You'll see what I mean. <laughs> Quote, A Bulgari necklace in the hand is worth two in the bush, said Doris. <laughs> or here's another one. They snuggled together happily for a bit, all passion spent, and she met him at Bulgari that lunchtime. <laughs> Fortunately, product placement in books has not really caught on, but I suspect that the experience of reading will be brought in closer and closer proximity to commercial advertising with the advent and the growing prominence of digital readers, electronic readers. Last year, Amazon issued two versions of its popular Kindle reader. One of them is the standard version, and the other, for $40 less, you can buy the same Kindle, provided you're willing to have commercial ads running on the home page and on the screensaver. Would it be worth it for $40? How many would go for that deal? A few people would. Some of the younger people in the audience. <laughs> Why should we worry if increasing areas of our lives are governed by market values. Well, let's go back to the friendship case and the wedding toast case. In many domains of life, what makes a good or a social practice valuable or meaningful is somehow displaced or crowded out or corrupted even if it's bought and sold. And it's not always easy to figure out what social practices have that feature. But it matters a lot, especially for public life and public decisions that we make, about the use of market mechanisms. Cash incentives are used increasingly as instruments of policy. I mentioned the example of the charity that offers $300 cash for sterilization to achieve a worthy end. What about what some have called health bribes? The NHS has begun experimenting with the use of cash incentives to get people to adopt healthy behavior, to take their prescription medications, to show up for a prescribed routine of jabs, or, in the case of those who are overweight, paying people to lose weight up to 425 pounds to lose weight and keep it off for up to two years. So let's begin our discussion by seeing how people view health bribes by the NHS. Let's begin just with a an informal survey, a show of hands. How many think it's a policy worth trying? And how many would be opposed? How many find it objectionable? Let's first see those who would be in favor, at least of giving it a try. And how many would be opposed? The majority would give it a try. A substantial minority are opposed. Let's start first, and we have... Roving, we have volunteers with roving microphones so that we can hear what people have to say. Let's hear first from those who are opposed. Why would you object? Who will start us off? Yes. Stand up and we'll get you a microphone. I would object because it's a government organization, and I think it's a thin end of the wedge, and it starts out as an incentive and ends up as a penalty and tax and fee. It ends up as a penalty, a tax, and fee. How does that happen? You're asking? Um, because the NHS is trying to reduce its costs, 
And if the incentive is not enough, they'll go to the next stage. They'll find people for being overweight? Yes. Uh, a fat tax. <laughs> That's what you foresee down the road. I do. And why would that be bad? Um, because then it's an intrusion on uh, individual freedoms and rights to express yourself and live the lifestyle you want to live. All right. What would you say? Yes. Please. Um, it's a difficult balancing act because on the one hand you have to account for the money that the government spends on the tax that it takes. On the other hand, it has to balance the freedom of anyone to eat whatever they want. But how is but the, the freedom... cost of that act, yeah. i.e. going and eating lots of hamburgers every day, all day, yes. that has a net impact on the running cost of the NHS, then why not place an incentive, albeit an opt-in incentive, which is voluntary, to give an incentive for people to live a healthier life? In my on money. average, the healthy life would be, i.e. your body weight mass ratio should be X. If right. you hit that bell curve, then right. it would give you the incentive. So it would save, the basic argument is, it would save money for the NHS in the long term. All in, increase the welfare of society because it, there would be less tax spent on overweight people overall. Right, on average, that's the savings. As right. an opt-in option. And so you would favor either the financial cash incentive or, by that logic, the tax. Yes, as, as, as long as people can opt in and are perfectly aware of their... No, the tax, the tax you can't opt well, in. Well, I'd, I'd stick to the opt-in option, not the tax. Why, though? The same logic of saving the NHS money, making the society more healthy, increasing the general welfare, yeah. applies equally with the tax, doesn't it? Yes, but not many politicians would, would allow that. But we're not politicians here. <laughs> we're, we're trying to reason it through. <laughs> yes, in I, accept, I, accept, I accept the... Both points, but it wouldn't be politically viable. Yes. It might create a perverse incentive for people to have sort of the wrong behavior, like putting on weight to then fall into the category of the obese I see. Or the same with the jobs. I would delay my jobs, my vaccinations, so that I, again, can fall into... It's the behavior... It's... Not a question of tax, a behavior. It's not a what? A question of tax. It's a question of behavior. So it's, it might create the perverse incentive. If some, there might be someone with a very fit physique who said, 425 pounds on offer. All right, I'll consume huge amounts of junk food, so I'll be eligible, well, and then Italian, I'll lose it all. So alternative behavior is... Uh, a sp- alternative strategies as part of our culture, but yes, or delaying with the jobs so to fall into the category of those who are called upon from the NHS. And do you think, in the case of smoking is another area where this is, do you think there might be people, non-smokers, who would say, (laughs) there's money in it for quitting, I think I'll start smoking two packs a day. Well, there are some on and off smokers, yes, they might have the incentive. All right, who else? In the back. Stand up and we'll get you the microphone. Uh, I think that getting money involved is just a bit lazy. And the risk is, even if it might work in some cases, that it stops us tackling the underlying issues that are involved. Such as? Well, losing weight. Um, I don't know, there are all sorts of... uh, you know, I mean, if, for example, we'd introduce money to help people stop losing weight 50, 100 years ago, then maybe the advances we'd made around nutrition and understanding the links between healthy lifestyles and doing well would be less well, less well developed. And that's leaving aside all the you know, untold consequences of introducing money into something so, uh, so important that should be fair for everyone. And is there something unfair about cash incentives for losing weight? Yes, because they have a disproportionate impact on people with different levels of, of wealth. And, you know, we don't actually it's, want a society where uh, wealth, wealth conquers, conquers all. Well, 
That, that's exactly what we're trying to sort out <laughs> yeah, here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I think, I think I've solved it, haven't I? I... <laughs> well, you've, you've gotten us a good part of the way. <laughs> but suppose money, in this case, could conquer obesity, just hypothetically. Then isn't that, wouldn't that be an area where we would want money to conquer Damn it, that's, that's quite good. I mean, I mean if in the, in, the, in the incredibly unlikely event, and this, I guess, is, is we're talking about probably that in this one isolated instance, money proves to be the one major determining factor as to whether people are obese or thin, then in some weird philosophical world, you'd have to say, well, all right. But that is so unlikely that I don't think it's worth considering. All right. <laughs> Thank you for that. (laughs) So far, the objections that have been raised have been of a practical nature, that there would be a perverse incentive. People would start smoking or becoming obese to qualify, or that it wouldn't really work as the sole determinant, and there would be reason to worry if it did. Is there anyone who has a principled objection to, to it. Yes. Yes. You used the word bribery to begin with. Hold the microphone up. So you used can... the word bribery to begin with. That's a very bad thing. That's pejorative. I wouldn't like to be bribed to do anything, nor would you, I imagine. Or paid for your job because you do your job. Surely the incentive for losing weight is to feel better. It's your, it's your health. Um, people can win the 100 meters by taking drugs. If you see people going around and there, you don't know whether they've been paid to look fit. It's rather worrying. That would worry me. That girl's beautiful because she's had facial surgery. It puts me off. (laughs) I don't think that we... Any of us should be bribed to do anything. And so you do view it as a bribe. At first I thought, when you spoke about my use of the word bribe, I thought maybe uh, you were an economist and you were going to say it's unfair to use that pejorative term bribe. Why not just use the value-neutral term incentive? But that wasn't your point. You, You approve of the label bribe for this practice. And for you, it explains what's objectionable about it, namely that money is displacing the proper motivation for health, which is to be fit, to be responsible toward one's own body, and that that is even... uh, And so the money, in a way, is a bribe because it's getting us to do the right thing for the wrong reason in losing the weight. Yes, um, to take money uh, in order to lose weight uh, seems to go against your own moral fiber. You'll never learn, you'll never grow. Uh, You may remain fat, of course, but um, you should want to lose weight because society is showing you that you'll feel better. You'll feel better. Not necessarily look better, because that is something for other people to look at. In some, as you know, only too well, that in in some societies, to be fat, particularly for women, is extremely attractive to men. Uh, In this country and in your country, it is not. It is to be slim. But Uh, the heart of your objection, I don't want to lose sight of this. No. Is that is that it's that the bribe to lose weight teaches the wrong lesson. Yes. All right. Let's, um, let's see if... And tell us your name. My name is Peter Bowles. Thank you for that. Let's see. Now, Peter has given us a principled objection to the health bribes. Let's see if there's someone who defends health bribes who has a reply 
to that principal objection. Yes. If we're talking about motivation and which is a good motivation, which is a poor one, we're just arguing about a spectrum of whether money is a poor motivator or the intrinsic motivator to have good health is a good one. It seems like we're sort of implicitly putting value judgments on things which really are a continuum. Some people might regard money as a bad thing. Some might regard being healthy as a good thing. Essentially, I see them all as in the same bucket of motivating factors, all right, of well, which let's... there are numerous arguments for and against various ones. So you've identified the question of intrinsic, the intrinsic value of certain motivations being higher. Peter thinks so. And tell us your name. Alistair. Alistair. You don't think there is... Aren't there intrinsic reasons to be healthy that can be distinguished from instrumental ones making money? Intrinsic reason to be healthy would... I suppose, be for the prolongation of life. But again, it has an, an, an implicit value judgment in that you want to be healthy because you want to live longer. But that's an assumption that doesn't it, necessarily it is, an, it is an implicit value judgment. I suspect Peter would nod readily and say, yes, but what's wrong with that value judgment? Isn't it better to seek health for the intrinsic good of it rather than because someone is manipulating me with money? Alistair? If that's, what, if that's what you regard as important, again, it's about the sort of values that you ascribe to it. If that, if that is something that you deem important, then yes. But if not, then if you regard money more importantly than the intrinsic motivation, then that, so be it. What are you studying? I'm a medical student. <laughs> medical student. And Alistair, as a medical student... <laughs> You, don't th- you, you, you think it's a contestable value judgment whether there is an intrinsic good to health that's different from a manipulated, manipulated motivation? Worryingly, yes. <laughs> and when you get your degree and begin practicing medicine, will you be tempted to bribe your patients? <laughs> no, I wish I would be in the financially lucrative position to do so. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for that. what this exchange brings out. And thank you to all of you who have participated in this part of the discussion. Is that there are disagreements about where monetary incentives belong and where they don't. And often those disagreements hang on the question of whether a monetary incentive will drive out or corrupt intrinsic goods or intrinsic motivations and cheapen them, degrade them, corrupt them. Alistair points out, well, to make even that judgment, that's a value judgment. Well, it is a value judgment, which suggests this for our general theme about where money and markets belong. It may not be possible to answer that question without engaging in moral deliberation, without forming, contesting, debating, and reasoning through value judgments about the meaning of various goods, in this case, health. Take another good, education. Another area where cash incentives have recently been used in many American cities where there are underachieving students from poor backgrounds School districts are experimenting with the use of cash incentives to motivate students to study. They offer monetary payment for higher grades, $50 for an A, $40 for a B, for high test scores. They've tried this in New York, Washington, Chicago. In Dallas, they offer third graders, young children, $2 for each book they read. Now, let's... Take, take a quick survey about whether you would favor, suppose you're the head of the school system in a city. There are students who are struggling. Someone comes with the proposal to pay children to get good grades or to read books. Take the $2 per book. How many would be in favor of trying? 
And how many would be opposed? This time it's more evenly divided, though I noticed a few people didn't vote. <laughs> Let's hear from those who object first. Why would you object? Yes. Because, because I think there are better ways. There I mean, are better I, ways. There are much better ways. I mean, you know, the teacher should read to the children and engage them. And I just think money is displacing the much better act of the teacher, you know, enlivening the child's mind and drawing them towards, towards the book. Naturally, I'm sure they can get from the library. So money is displacing the higher pursuit yes. of the teacher inspiring the child to read. Well, it, it, the teacher may be confused even as, as to their role. It may, may confuse the teacher as to what they're doing because money is now, now in there. The teacher's very clear about what they have to do. But if you add another thing in there, well, is that supposed to work rather than what the teacher has to do? Are you worried that it would confuse the teacher or also that it would confuse the students? Well, I think it would, confuse, it would confuse me. It would, it would confuse the, the relationship between, between the educator and, and the child. Who else? What do you say? Um, I think I have a similar opposition to both scenarios, the weight loss and the paying children to read, and that if you introduce money into it, it's sort of diminishes their personal achievement um, for the benefit of a kind of majority. So kind of society would benefit from people losing weight so the interest saves money or for students reading more books so that overall grade standards are improved. But to that individual person, um, the kind of the reward that they get for having done it themselves, for, <coughs> excuse me, for their own reasons... For their diminished. own reasons. Yes. So are we back to the idea of intrinsic reasons? Yes, for, for their own sense of achievement rather than because everybody else would benefit as a result. All right, and let's see if there's someone on the other side who can reply to these objections. Having heard the objections, those who support the practice... Yes, what would you say? Yeah. Yeah, um, I, I think intrinsic... Intrinsic reasons is, is not a. Put the microphone a bit Sorry, closer. I don't think intrinsic reasons is a is a useful word. I think it it wouldn't work either way. Um, if it worked, we should do it. But it wouldn't work because um, I don't believe you can um, incentivize passion and gifts, um, and that's something which you know is deep in you know human nature, and you can't really put a price on that. Hmm. And I think. It's something which is really hard to articulate, and it's kind of uncanny, it's strange. You, you, you know it within you, you know there's certain things that you, know, you shouldn't pay for and you know, should be you know, a gift, yeah. in a sense. And I think and reading, what, reading is one of them. Reading is one of them. Mm. So we're here trying to discuss how we can figure out or reason through mm. what goods are of that kind. Yeah. You're trying it to put a contract a on a gift, basically. All right, who disagrees? We've heard some reasons to oppose this policy. Who's prepared to defend the policy against the objections that, that you've heard? Yes. Reading is a skill. Laying bricks is a skill. Tying knots is a skill. We all get paid to learn skills. So I have no objective, oh, no objection to someone paying and incenting someone to, pay, to learn a skill. And if you really think of the interchange between a teacher and a student, the teacher is giving uh, recognition to that student. Recognition is the currency. And if $2 is, is the currency that works, knock yourself out. All right, let's, let's hear a reply from, what was it, yeah. You, you said before a pri we shouldn't put a price on reading. What's your name? Roxana. Roxana. What would you say in reply? 
if it worked, I would be all for it. If I could, if I could give my kid two, if I had children and if I could give them two quid and they would read, you know, Tolstoy, I would pay them every single day. I think. Uh, uh, wait, wait, wait. Roxanne, I think Tolstoy would require more than two quid. Probably. <laughs> but if I could, I would do it. Um, but, but I, I all don't... of War and Peace? Yeah. 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 Okay. Yes. I'm surprised that people think it doesn't work. I think I'm aware, and I think most of us are aware of a few schools, uh, not in this continent, but in other continents, that actually incentivize children to come to school by giving them food. And it's a huge incentive for, for children to come to school from there to learn specific skills, which, which later on takes them through life. And I think by judging the, the <coughs> kind of incentive for kind of a bigger cause, which, uh, which might be kind of learning how to read in general, or learning a book, from one book to a second book, from a second book to, 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 to more complex books, is if it works, and it does work, we should do it. Yes. Uh, having worked in a school that had a high level of social deprivation, I would be in favor of giving teachers this as one of an arsenal to encourage children who come from homes that may not be like ours, that don't have books, that don't have parents that read, uh, that don't always uh, get to school. And if this is something that can help a teacher reach children, uh, I would include it in the arsenal of tools that they need to make this good happen. All right. I want to step back from these two debates, and thank you for all of those who have joined in the second round, to notice two features of the arguments we've heard. One way of addressing these questions is to say, well, will it work? And people have different views about whether or not it will work. But the argument is the test of whether it's appropriate is whether it will work. And then there's another line of argument we've heard that says whether it will work is not the only question. There's also the question of making value judgments, drawing on Alastair's phrase, about intrinsic goods about goods that should not be priced, about manipulating people to do the right thing for the wrong reason, about teaching the wrong lesson. So the objections of principle have to do with the worry that in cases like health and education, monetary incentives may crowd out or corrupt non-monetary intrinsic goods worth caring about. I should mention the results, so far at least, of, the, of these experiments. In New York City, the paying children for getting good grades had no effect on improving the grades. In Dallas, though, the $2 for each book did lead the young students to read more books. It also led them to read shorter books. <laughs> but the larger question is what will become of these students when they're not being paid? Will the reading continue? Will the habit take? That's the idea of adding to the arsenal. Or will the wrong habit have been inculcated? Namely, the idea that reading is for the sake of making money. A friend of mine pays his young children one dollar for each thank you note they write. I've received some of these thank you notes. <laughs> And I can tell by reading them that they were written under duress. <laughs> My wife and I look askance at this policy, and we wonder how these kids will turn out. The hopeful scenario is that by writing thank you notes for pay, they'll get in the habit of writing thank you notes. They will eventually absorb the real reason for writing thank you notes so that when they're no longer being paid, they'll carry on writing them, and they will learn the virtue of gratitude. The less optimistic scenario is the lesson they will learn is that thank you notes are a chore, a form of piecework to be done for money. And if that's what they learn, then when the money stops, so will the thank you notes. Their moral education will have been corrupted, and they'll find it difficult to learn the virtue of gratitude. In Switzerland, they were trying to decide where to locate a nuclear waste site. No community wants one, and it's backyard, but they identified a town 
in the mountains, a small town, is the likeliest place. The residents, though, had to agree. A survey was done before the final decision was made, asking the residents, if the parliament chooses your town, will you accept the nuclear waste site? 51% said yes. Then they asked a follow-up question. They sweetened the deal. They said, suppose the parliament chooses your town and votes to allocate a financial compensation to each resident of the town yearly of up to $8,000. Then would you approve? Now how many do you think were willing to accept it? What would you guess? How many? 80? 70? 90? Lower. Someone says lower. Lower? It was lower. The willingness dropped from 51% in half to 25 Now, from the stamp... What's that? That wouldn't happen in Britain, you say. Here, what would it be? 90%? You think so? Well, here's an interesting question. From the standpoint of standard economic models, this is a paradox. If you offer people money to do something, their willingness to do it goes up, not down. So what happened here? What do you suppose happened? What? What was it? Now the risk, they have a heightened sense of the risk. 8,000 euros must really be awful, dangerous, worse than I thought. That's one hypothesis. What? It was too much. A bribe? What? I think it goes to the same point, which is a transactional. By putting this price, they felt that it was too cheap a price for... Too cheap a price. All right, so there are two hypotheses here. <laughs> One is, maybe the, the, they've reasoned, they're willing to pay 8,000 euros. It must really be riskier than we thought. But they tested for this, and it turns out that the estimate of the risk by the population was the same in the first, uh, before and after the monetary offer. So it turns out, though it's, it's a plausible hypothesis, that that was not, did not explain the difference. What did seem to explain the difference is a point some others have suggested. They asked people, why did you change your mind? And they said, we didn't want to be bribed. See, before, the 51% were willing to undertake this sacrifice for the sake of the common good, as a sense, out of a sense of public responsibility. We need the energy. The waste has to go somewhere. This is the safest place. We'll accept it. But then when they're offered money, what had been a matter of civic virtue becomes a financial transaction. And they said, we're not willing to endanger our families for 8,000 euros if it's a financial transaction. So in the Swiss town, it seems the monetary incentive had the effect of crowding out, displacing, corrupting the sense of civic duty, public responsibility. In Israel, there were some daycare centers with a familiar problem. Parents coming late to pick up their children, nurseries. So with the help of some economists, they tried to solve the problem by imposing a fine for late arrivals. What do you suppose happened? There were more late arrivals. Now, why did this happen? What? Right. Well, yeah, people have have called it out. Before when people came late, see, the, the monetary fine was treated by the parents as a fee. And before when they got, arrived late, they felt guilty. They were imposing an inconvenience on the teachers. They were violating an obligation to show up on time. But 
Once there is what they regard to be a fee, they're paying for a service. So why feel guilty? You don't feel guilty when you hire a babysitter to look after your child. It was like paying a a babysitting fee. So here again, the introduction of a cash incentive dissolved or crowded out the sense of obligation to show up. And what's interesting and telling is that when they saw what happened, they removed the fine, but the high level of late arrivals persisted, (laughs) which suggests that once you erode a sense of responsibility, a mutual responsibility in a common purpose, it's not so easy simply to turn it back on again once you erode the ethos. Well, what do we learn from these cases? I think what we learn is is this. In order to decide where markets serve the public good and where they don't belong, we have to do more than ask about economic efficiency and how incentives will work. We also have to ask about whether introducing money into a certain practice will dissolve or displace or crowd out goods, attitudes, norms, values worth caring about. And this carries a consequence for the way we think about markets and the role of markets in public life generally. During the past three decades, when markets and market mechanisms and the faith in market reasoning have reached into most every sphere of life, we've had very little public debate about where markets belong and where they may crowd out important non-market values. In Iraq and Afghanistan, there were more paid military contractors than there were U.S. military troops. Now, this was not because there was ever an explicit public debate whether we wanted to outsource war to private military companies. It happened. And in many areas of public life and personal life, markets and market mechanisms are playing a greater and greater role. And the argument of the book is we need to step back and deliberate together, to reason together in public about hard value judgments, the kind that Alistair worries about our making. Now, the reason it's hard is that we don't all agree on the meaning of goods. We don't all agree on the, on the proper way of valuing health and the intrinsic goods that it may or may not involve. We don't all agree on how to value education or how to go about teaching and learning. We don't all agree to go back to the cash for sterilization example, on how to value the reproductive capacity of women. These are controversial questions, and we tend to shy away from them in our public debate because we're worried, I think, understandably, about disagreement. But unless we confront directly these questions, unless we find our way to a morally more robust public discourse... These questions will not go undecided. Markets will decide these questions for us. I'd just like to end with a small story. We've been talking about some large social institutions, health, education, military, criminal justice system, prisons, about the difficulty of translating all values, all goods, into a single uniform measure of value, namely money. I spent four years in Britain as a graduate student. I was a graduate student in Oxford in the mid and late 70s. And in those days, they still had all men's, some all men's and all women's colleges. They weren't all mixed. And in the all women's colleges, they had rules against overnight male guests. These rules were rarely enforced by then and easily violated, (laughs) or so I was told. (laughs) Pressure was 
growing to relax these rules at St. Anne's College, which was one of the all-women's colleges in, in my day. And there were those who were opposed, those who wanted to retain the traditional rules on traditional moral grounds. But times had changed, and they were embarrassed to give the, the true reason for their objection. So they translated their argument into utilitarian terms, into monetary terms. They said, if we allow overnight male guests, the costs to the college will increase. <laughs> How? How, you might wonder? Well, they'll want to take baths, and that'll use up hot water, they said. <laughs> Furthermore, they argued, we'll have to replace the mattresses more often. <laughs> monetary arguments. The reformers met those objections by offering the following compromise. Each St. Anne's woman could have a maximum of three overnight male visitors each week, <laughs> provided he, he paid 50 pence to defray the costs to the college. The next day, the headline in The Guardian read, St. Anne's girls, 50 pence a night, <laughs> which shows the folly of trying to translate all goods into monetary terms. Thank you very much. All right. Until we have time for a, a couple of quick questions, and then we'll... Yes? Thank you for that very um, thought-provoking, entertaining lecture. Um, I couldn't agree with you more that there is a need to have a public discourse about the intrusion of markets into public life and into character and, the, and, and where we want to go with this. What I also see as a part of the um, intrusion of markets into public life is the erosion of domains where you can have that conversation. Mm. So there, suddenly our friends are all on Facebook, which is a public company. Suddenly there is, all, well, as of yesterday. Then there's, you know, our, 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 our church institutions are not as strong as they used to be. Our, our communities are not as tight. They're more permeable and, and more transient. So, and then you turn perhaps to your political system, thinking perhaps these values will be somehow discussed in that public forum and, and, you know, and yet you know that the ultimate game of those public forums is for the accumulation of power, which is another sort of currency, and the accumulation of votes, and it isn't in some ways an honest discussion. Yeah. So where does one have this conversation, yeah. and with whom? Yeah, it's good. Well, a very good question. I think that it's true. There seem to be fewer and fewer places where we can have serious discussion of values, where there may be disagreement, but civility and respect, listening to one another, including on big moral questions on which we may disagree. One of the developments in our public life that has coincided, I think, with the last three decades of market triumphalism is a hollowing out of our public discourse. And our public discourse increasingly is managerial and technocratic, which inspires no one, or where passion enters, shouting, shouting past one another. And I think that we need to find ways to get beyond this. I think the media has a role to play because... Too much of the media encourages and rewards the shouting matches rather than sustained serious reflection and deliberation on big questions. Certainly the political parties have a responsibility, though I doubt they will meet it unless they are encouraged, even demanded, to do so by citizens. I think institutions of higher education have a responsibility to equip citizens with the ability to reason in public about hard questions involving ethics, justice, the common good, what it is to be a citizen. I think religious institutions and communities can be sites for this kind of public discussion, as well as other institutions and social movements within civil society. But I think it's a very serious question. Yes. 
Um, I, I've got two takeaways from what you said. One is that um, you're really talking about the idea that introducing money uh, um, it makes us reframe the problem. Um, and this kind of process of reframing kind of changes the way we make decisions or changes our behavior. So first of all, I was wondering if, if that's what you're talking about. And if we take money away from this, do you, you know, say we have, instead of money, we have candy. Um, now I'm looking at my two-year-old son who seems to have an extremely um, good understanding of the, the, the ideas of exchange. Um, he, we don't use money, we use candy. But it does incentivize him um, in, in certain ways. Um, uh, now that's one, one question. The other thing I wanted to ask you is, do you basically, are you basically arguing that we should have situations where we have no expectation of reciprocity in, in an exchange situation? So basically we have like a perfect gift, a gift where we don't expect anything in back, which uh, theoretically, you know, a lot of people argue doesn't exist. So I, I just have a, your views on those two things. Right. I'm not suggesting that there are cases, we should try to find cases where there is no expectation of reciprocity. But that's very different from marketizing a thing. Think about it this way. Suppose a friend asked you, uh, a friend was moving out of a flat and needed help moving a mattress, and they said, will you come help me? You might well say yes. Suppose instead they said, come help me, and I'll pay you three pounds for it. Then would you be more or less likely to help? Probably less. Probably less. Because, in fact, you might, if it were a close friend, even be insulted by the offer. And so it's... Um, now, what does that have to do with the expectation of reciprocity? Well, you might sort of do it as a friend, free, out of friendship. And part of being a friend is an expectation of not an exact reciprocal act, but maybe something, some other kind of favor later, but without being specified. So there is a certain kind of expectation. It's not specified. It's not written down in any contract. You don't ask them to sign before you move the mattress. <laughs> Will you do some good deed to me later at some specified time? And yet it, it's not a market relation. There's an element of reciprocity, but it's not spelled out. It's, it's what it is to be a friend, to be open to these possibilities. As for the candy... Money is not the only form of extrinsic motivation that can crowd out intrinsic motivation. And candy or gold stars sometimes can have a similar effect, especially in teaching. Yes? Thank you. I do think that public discourse should center um, on helping the poor and the vulnerable especially. Um, there's a tendency to assume that everyone has equal means if we should let markets decide the question. With your example of uh, paying $300 for drug-addicted women to sterilize themselves and not be able to have children, it does seem that it's a matter of um, one organization which is using rational, consequentialist-based arguments for whatever um, uh, to advance their cause, pitted against uh, people who are addicted to drugs, perhaps un less likely to be able to think rationally, certainly without the financial freedom to, say easily, to easily say no. As such, I think there's a large asymmetry of, um, of the relative bargaining powers between the two parties, and this to me sounds very exploitive, does not seem to respect human dignity of anyone. Yeah. Well, there, you've identified one objection to buying and selling things under condition of inequality. One party, it may be a a voluntary exchange, strictly speaking, but if an affluent person from the U.S. or the U.K. buys a kidney from a poor Indian peasant, it may be a voluntary exchange, and yet we might say the, the bargaining positions are so unequal that there's an element of exploitation here. This arises also in debates about, contract, about surrogate motherhood, paid pregnancy. In India, they've legalized uh, paid pregnancy to cater to Western couples who want to come and hire Indian women to bear pregnancies. A similar issue could be raised. Is this, given the poverty, the money is so attractive, is there an element of exploitation? So that is one objection to markets. But a second objection to markets, independent of that one, is... Is paying someone to relinquish an organ 
or to bear a child and give it up for money, degrading. Independent of whether it's exploitative, is it degrading? These are actually two different objective, uh, objections. The first one has to do with there not being a level playing field when the deal is made so that the choice isn't truly free. That's the worry, your worry, and it's a legitimate one. But even if the choice is freely made, there may be some choices that implicate us in a form of self-degradation that we've chosen. And that's why debates about markets in organs, kidneys, let's say, or markets in pregnancy, surrogacy, are so difficult. I think they involve these two different kinds of moral debates. One, what is truly free choice? And two, even if the choice is free, is there something intrinsically degrading about, and this arises in debates about prostitution, Suppose there were not dire poverty. Would there still be something degrading about selling sex? And this, people disagree about this. But the degradation argument, it's worth noticing, is independent of the, the equality argument. And I think both of these uh, need to be part of the debate that we have. Thank you all very much. Thank you, Thank you for listening. You can download more Intelligence Square podcasts free on iTunes and SoundCloud. If you'd like to find out more about our events, sign up to our newsletter at intelligencesquared.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter.